Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, Villanova. Who should be favored ahead of the Final Four? Plus, breaking down the top of the East and the bottom of the West in the NBA standings. And, what would it mean to have Tiger Woods return at the Masters? It's episode 67 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Once again, everybody here on Thursday, March 31st, 2022, the 67th episode. Can't believe we're 67 episodes in on this podcast. Let me speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. It has been an insane week, and I'm not just talking about the sports world, but I'm talking about me in particular. Some very big, exciting news, at least in my personal world is there i have a new job position you are looking at the newest part-time radio board operator over at weei boston's sports radio network if you don't know that is the radio station that takes care of the red sox game so if you can't watch it on tv you turn on that station and that station will give you the red sox game it's very very exciting it's Uh, my first job, really first big job since coming out of college at Westfield state, uh, using that degree in communications. And I've just been very, very excited about it. We start next week. I should say I start next week doing a little bit of training, then we'll get into some shifts. Um, but don't worry for those of you who are fans of this podcast, I am not going anywhere. We are going to try our best to continue this podcast going. This is a short part-time position i will have some time to create this podcast record some segments edit and produce it live on all podcasting platforms so don't worry this podcast is not going anywhere but i do have a brand new position that i did want to bring up if anyone was curious so that's the exciting thing that's happening in me let's talk about in general i mean nothing is better than springtime if you're talking sports i mean you've got The MLB is about to get started. The NBA and the NHL are going into playoffs. The NFL's got a crazy offseason. And then, of course, March Madness. You can't go this whole thing without talking about March Madness. And for what has been going on all season long in men's college basketball, with all the parity, the multiple number ones, the upsets, the upsets, the Final Four has been, I guess you could call it lackluster in terms of schools that, maybe had maybe schools that um, no one was thinking could make it this far and there'd be sort of a smaller school, but there's a ton of championship experience and pedigree between what is now being called the blue blood final four. We've got Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova. This is the first time ever in the men's college basketball tournament that each school that has had at least three national championships on their resume. It's unbelievable, this Final Four. I mean, would as I said about lackluster, it's only lackluster because, you know, you have Kansas as a one, Villanova and Duke are twos, and then North Carolina is number eight. You know, you'd expect maybe a smaller school that doesn't have a lot of championship experience in terms of, Uh, The men's field, you know, like a Gonzaga or an Arizona or, you know, something like that, where there's sort of a new team, new team to rise up. But after the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16, we know the Final Four is set with these four schools. And I couldn't believe this, that uh, one of the matchups, Duke and North Carolina, this is going to be the first time ever that these two teams will meet in the NCAA tournament. I could not believe it with the amount of history and the rivalry between these two teams. This is the first time ever they meet in postseason play, postseason 
in March Madness. I couldn't believe that when I first read about it. But to talk about uh, the games themselves, starting with the Blue Devils and the Tar Heels, I mean, when you have a high-profile rivalry like this, there's going to be extra motivation. You know that for sure. You know that North Carolina wants to, A, avenge their loss uh, at home when Duke came in and beat them. And not only that, but they want to knock out Coach K in his final season and send him into retirement. On the other side, you've got Duke, who's trying to get revenge on North Carolina uh, for coming into Cameron Indoor and basically upsetting Duke in Coach K's final game uh, at Cameron Indoor. And not only that, but eliminate uh, one of their biggest rivals to tie a little bow on Mike Krzyzewski's final season with Duke. So you know there's going to be extra motivation. This is going to be the game. I know, you know, no disrespect to Kansas Villanova, but this is the game that everyone is watching for. Everyone's going to watch it. There's going to be millions of viewers on this one because, I mean, come on. Duke and North Carolina are the Lakers Celtics, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Bears and the Packers. This is the rivalry. And if you put in postseason aspirations, it's only going to get that much more intense. But on the court, the question is how well uh, can Duke play defense against a strong offense like North Carolina. I mean, the way this offense has been performing for the Tar Heels uh, has been unbelievable in this tournament. I mean, Coach Hubert Davis, you know, this isn't Roy Williams, North Carolina. This is a totally different squad. This is a team that during the tournament are averaging 82.5 points per game and are shooting over 35% from three. So they know how to put in the offense. You've got four different leading scorers in four different games. Um, so that just shows you the depth and the versatility that this roster for the Tar Heels are. And in watching North Carolina, I've been very impressed with uh, two guys in particular. First one is Brady Manick. Uh, the seniors averaging 21 and a half points per game, eight rebounds per game on this tournament run. And he's been sort of that offensive juggernaut. You know, he's been sort of all reliable. He's not going to be the lean scorer every single time, but he's going to be the guy that the Tar Heels are always looking for. The second guy I would say to watch for is Armando Bacon. Bacon coming off a 2020 game against St. Peter's. And I know it was a blowout against the Peacocks in the Elite Eight. But so far in four tourney games, uh, Baycott is averaging 16 and a half points per game and nearly 16 rebounds per game. He's basically averaging the same amount of points as he is rebounds. So that's number one for Duke is limiting Bacon down low. It's, it's all about the defense and limiting this offense in general, but you start with those two guys. Then you throw in guys like RJ Davis, Caleb love again, versatility is what North Carolina has. And I think that's, what's going to carry them if they want to, if they're going to get past Duke and eventually into the national championship. That's what I'm uh, thinking with this Tar Heel squad for Duke though. As I said, it is about defense, but also this is a team that sort of, I was one of those guys who was thinking with the pressure of Coach K's last tournament run, um, getting beat in the ACC tournament and in Coach K's final game at Cameron, I thought they would succumb uh, to the pressure. But I think what Coach K has done has sort of brought that team back down to earth and has you know told them not to worry about the moment because the big moments – uh, have come and gone. You know, you get the, you had the big ceremony when it was coach K's final game. And then you get beat in the ACC tournament. And so far in this tournament run, they've looked really, really good. They beat Michigan state. They beat Texas tech. Uh, they they've shown some really good play. And especially from uh, Paolo Bonchero, I think if he's that guy on offense, if he's a lean scorer, this Duke team has a really good shot of uh, knocking off their rivals from North Carolina. So that's going to be a game. I think, you know, if anything, I will keep my eyes on the most between those two. I mean, that's going to be something that, you know, I think it's going to be a classic. I really do think it's going to be a classic between these two, because let's face it, rivalries bring out the best and sometimes the worst in people. So we'll see what happens with that. But of course, Everyone, you know, you have your first matchup, but what about the second matchup? I know everyone's talking Duke-UNC, but there's still another matchup in the Final Four. The Jayhawks and the Wildcats, 
And to me, this has been, um, this is a matchup of two teams that have basically been flying under the radar all season long, all season long. No one's talked about it. You know, you've had your Gonzaga's, your Dukes, your Baylor's, um, your Arizona's, your Auburn's, but lo and behold, here's Kansas, the number one seed carrying all the momentum from winning the big 12 uh, conference championship. And they've basically been rolling in every single game. They've been rolling and they've been in control in almost every tournament game. And if you date back to the regular season, they've won nine straight, nine straight games. So I think momentum is on the side of Kansas, but I want to talk more about Villanova side of things, because I think they have the more interesting story because let's face it, the Jayhawks, pretty much are complete. They're a complete team right now. And the question pretty much since the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight is, how does Villanova adjust their game plan? What does Jay Wright do? Because Justin Moore, that's the big story. Tearing his Achilles during the Elite Eight game against Houston, he's their second leading scorer on the team. Okay, you got Colin Gillespie, who's got uh, over 50 and a half points per game. The next guy uh, besides Justin Moore is Jermaine Samuels with 11.1 points per game. So I think offense is going to be a real, it's going to be a struggle for Jay Wright and his squad. I really do think so. It's just a matter of which guys are going to come through and sort of make up for Justin Moore and what he provided on the offensive game. Not only that, but on both sides of the court, uh, how he plays well on offense and how he does well on defense. So we've heard Jay Wright talk about, you know, other guys like another Archie Diacono, um, guys like that. And this is an experienced coach. Okay. Jay Wright is a two time, uh, national champion. Okay. He's won, I want to say two national championships in the span of, uh, first one was 2016. So it's been six years. So, you know, it, in terms of college basketball, it's a juggernaut. Villanova is a juggernaut and Jay Wright has the experience. So I'm not, you know, totally counting out Villanova just yet, because it seems like every time they try and go for a win, they find a way. They find a different way. Uh, so I think that's going to be just as compelling as a game as the first one. But by the time we get to a new episode next week, there will have been a national champion crown. And, you know, let's just, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb right here. I think it's going to be Duke and Kansas in the national championship. Duke and Kansas for the national championship. And you know what? This is, it's just too good of a story to, to pass up. I think Duke goes all the way. They win the national championship. I, I really do think so. I mean, this is when you have players that are motivated to win for someone or, you know, a group of people, that is extra motivation. And of course, you have a legendary coach like Coach K. There would be no other way for Coach Mike Krzyzewski to go out than as a national champion. That just seems like too obvious of a story that basically writes itself right then and there. So I think it's going to be Duke over Kansas this Monday night for the national championship. But the good thing about final four, again, as I said last week and the week after that, as I say over and over March madness living up to its name. And I am looking forward to watching two incredible games in the final four in new Orleans. So we can crown a champion in men's college basketball. And sticking with basketball, we go to from the college game to the pro game. Let's talk about the NBA. And lo and behold, by next Sunday, the regular season is going to be over. We're already going into the postseason. I mean, honestly, to me, it's a little surprising to see it come out so quick because normally, you know, on a normal schedule, you'd see hockey playoffs get underway. The NHL would start their playoffs and then the NBA would get theirs underway. But Obviously, the NHL is a little bit delayed because of, you know, the the COVID pause plus the Olympic timeline, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just let's talk about the NBA right now. We're getting into the postseason right now. When you look at the standings, all teams, you know, looks like they're they're pretty much locked, but there's still some jockeying for positions. I mean, honestly, there are only four teams right now who have officially clinched playoff spots. Just looking at it real quick. It's Miami, Phoenix, Memphis and Dallas. Dallas last night clinching their playoff spot but 
For this segment, I wanted to talk about kind of a parallel. I want to look at the East and the West, and they're two completely different stories. And starting with the East, the biggest fight you would think are for those last playoff spots, you know, the, the 8, 9, 10 into the play-ins. That's what it normally is. But the fighting is at the top of the Eastern Conference. I mean, you got four teams all within two games of the top spot in the Eastern Conference. You got the Heat, the Bucks, the Celtics, and the 76ers all within two games of each other. Now, I do think, you know, when you're trying to find the top team in the East, it's really hard to say because you've got these four teams that have been playing well since the All-Star break. Then you've got uh, Brooklyn, who's still obviously a threat down there in number eight. But we've talked about Brooklyn all season long. But just looking at the play of uh, all four teams so far, I would say right now, you know, at this moment and things can change. My favorite right now would probably be, be Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee has to be my favorite. And, you know, when you get closer to postseason time, this is what they've done pretty much in the Giannis Antetokounmpo era is that they've flown under the radar all season long. And no one talks about how good they are because you have the bigger headlines, like the, the combination in Philly with Embiid and Harden. You got the struggle of the Nets, who were title favorites, and now they're in eighth place. Or you got the Lakers or the Warriors or other teams like that. But how about Milwaukee? You got to remember, these are the defending champions of the NBA. This team has a top three player in the NBA right now in the Greek freak. And he hasn't taken a step back at all. Giannis is second in the league in scoring. He's fifth in rebounds. And they're bringing back basically the same squad from last year's championship team. And there are a lot of great two-way players, okay? They haven't had Brooke Lopez for a long time now, but he's back in the lineup. You still have Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Bobby Portis. This is a team that has the championship experience. I honestly think that Milwaukee right now is the team to beat in the East right now. I mean, look at the game that they had uh, between Philly uh, and Milwaukee. I mean, Giannis with the clutch block at the end on Joel Embiid. If Giannis turns that up, if he's doing what he's doing now, you just touch that up by 10% and he's an unstoppable force. Okay. I don't see anyone that can stop the Greek freak at the role he's been on for years now. And I mean, years just flying under the radar. No one really talking about him. I think, I think the, the reason no one talks about him is because, you know, it's the same old story. You know, it's nothing new. It's not like they're turning heads uh, because Giannis has just been doing, you know, his numbers have held steady, slowly getting better, as I mentioned. And uh, they're just, they're a team that isn't making a ton of noise because they're not making a big trade or they're not making huge headlines. They're just holding steady, getting guys that just continue to play basketball extremely well. So I think at this moment, at this moment, and again, as I said, things can change, but right now Milwaukee is my favorite in the Eastern Conference right now. And then second, I would probably have to say Boston because they are the hottest team in the league right now since the All-Star break. I would say they would be the favorite with the way they play, but yeah, the Robert Williams injury, which we'll talk a little bit about later on in the show, I think that leaves room for a slight step back, especially what you saw uh, last night in the game against Miami. So I think Boston's probably the second best team with what they've done basically since the all-star break and pretty much since the, the new calendar year in 2022, I'd say probably the third best team would probably be Philly right now. I thought they would have been a little bit more dominant than they've had. I mean, you look at the record right now, they're 46 and 29. They're 11 and six since the James Harden trade. And they've just struggled recently. I mean, you got back-to-back -back losses against uh, the two top teams in each conference, Phoenix, and then Milwaukee. And I think, when you look at Philly, I think the talk of it has to be the supporting cast. You know, that's what, that's what Philly has. They've tried to do it for years. They've tried to do uh, rely on Joel Embiid. And then at the time, Ben Simmons uh, for most of their offense. And you're seeing guys like Tobias Harris, not really step up uh, or in recent years, you know? So 
the supporting cast can't be relying on their two all-stars or virtuoso MVPs. So you just have to find that third consistent score. And we've seen it go back and forth so many times from Tobias Harris, from Tyrese Maxey. I, I think the problem with that is when there isn't a consistent third scorer, you've got your top players who are changing the way they're playing. And to me, James Harden is kind of shying away from being a bigger facilitator. I mean, when you look at uh, the numbers that he's has, he's still flirting with triple doubles, but he's doing way more scoring than he should. You know, he's trying to be a facilitator as much as he can, but he's becoming a bigger scorer. And we've seen, you know, in the past probably year and a half, you know, eventually since the trade uh, from Houston, that he's a triple threat. He's a triple double. He's he's he could have a triple double every single night. But the problem is that, you know, that I think is going on is that Harden sees the scoring uh, struggle from the rest of his supporting cast. And he's just got to pick things up a little bit. Now, I'm not saying that they're totally out of it, but I'm just saying that until Philly finds a consistent third score that they can rely on when the double teams are coming from coming to Joel Embiid, when James Harden is passing the ball as best he can, where's that third option? Who's that third option? And is it can, is going to continue to be sort of a flip-flop in interchanging all these starting lineups? So that's what I want to see from Philly, uh, at the beginning of the postseason, end of the regular season, I want to see what they do there. And then I would probably say Miami is the fourth. And it's nothing against Miami because they've played great all season long. They've dealt with a ton of injuries just coming in back and forth. But when you've seen it over the last week, and I'm, I'm not going to include the game last night against Boston because that was a different story, but they had lost four straight before winning against Sacramento. And you saw it last week uh, with the argument between Jimmy Butler, Coach Eric Spolster, and Udonis Haslam. You know, it's a team that's frustrated with uh, not playing the way they were at the beginning of the year. That's that's really all it is. You know, it's it's nothing that's falling apart. I don't think they're falling apart. Um, this is just a team that's still trying to figure out the rotation. We've seen a lot of juggling from the lineup uh, with head coach Eric Spolster. So we don't know what's going to work out. We know that the success that Miami has is – Jimmy Butler being a strong scorer, Bam Adebayo being a presence down low at the center spot, and then getting great shooting from uh, guys like Tyler Hero, who's basically the sixth man of the year before the season even ends. I'm already penciling him in for that one. So I just think when it comes down to, you know, postseason time, you know, when you go back to the bubble, that's when they were at their best. Last, last year when they played Milwaukee in that first round, they looked dead, absolutely dead. And, you know, that's why you bring in guys like P.J. Tucker, like Kyle Lowry to turn those things around. So I just want to see, you know, when it gets down to the nitty gritty. We saw it last night how well they can play defensively. But when there are these kind of frustrations, are we going to see more moments like that when you see Jimmy Butler get a little bit heated? We don't know that for sure. But I just think it's so tight that a good team like Miami, in my eyes, are the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference. But Shifting conferences, let's go to the West. And as we talked about the top of the East, the bottom of the West is just as exciting. I mean, you got three teams fighting for the final two playoff spots. You got the Lakers, the Pelicans, and the Spurs. And I think everyone, and I mean everyone in the basketball world, has been talking about how bad Los Angeles looks right now. The Lakers are just I haven't seen like a full game. I've seen like little snippets here and there, but they just look awful. They look awful. And they were on the outside looking in at one point, but thanks to a Spurs loss last night, they get themselves back in the 10th spot. And it's like, just when you think it can't get any worse, you know, here they come with LeBron James spraining his ankle, joining Anthony Davis on the inactive list. This is a team that's lost 25 of 35 games. This is a team that was, you know, at 500 and now they're 31 and 44. Okay. So, I mean, not even LeBron James being the NBA's leading scorer at 30 points per game can even save this team. And as I said, I watched little snippets and it just doesn't look like they have the energy or the willingness to play together. And I think that's, you know, that's nothing against any of the players, you know, individually, because, 
I've, you know, I'm the biggest Russell Westbrook advocate uh, for this year in terms of not putting all of the blame on him. He does get, you know, partial blame, not, not all of it, but just partial, but it's just the construction of the roster. You got a bunch of old inexperienced guys. Um, you've dealt with a bunch of injuries and they they just don't look, you know, when you have Dwight Howard taking threes, you know, your team isn't invested at all. And it's only going to get harder and harder for uh, the Lakers because they have the toughest schedule left in the NBA. They're at Utah, home against New Orleans, home against Denver, uh, at Phoenix, at Golden State, home versus Oklahoma City, and then at Denver. Okay, so it would not surprise me at all to see the Lakers get bounced from the play-in. It would not surprise me at all. And even if they do get into the play-in, I think they're going to be right then and out. They're going to be in and out just like that. You know, they just don't seem to want to play. (laughs) They just don't seem to want to play with each other. And especially when you've got two teams like New Orleans and San Antonio who are slowly turning things around. I think, you know, the Pelicans are in a good position, but they just can't let up. They're they're at the nine spot. They're two up on San Antonio, who's on the outside looking in. They're not going to catch the Clippers, I don't think. They're four, they're four back of L.A. But to see New Orleans, you know, have that scoring and then getting better on defense, I think is what's helping them out and helping research it. Now, they're 33 and 43. I'm not saying it's a huge turnaround, but it's a turnaround nonetheless to get into the postseason. And then when you have San Antonio climbing back into things, I mean, full credit to Greg Popovich. I mean, this is a guy who's won five NBA championships. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. This team had one four straight before last night's loss against Memphis, which, by the way, was a layup away from keeping that spot. So, you know, it's not a total sidetrack yet because it's only a matter of time before the Lakers blow another game. But I think when you look at San Antonio, it's just great offense from DeJounte Murray and Keldon Johnson. You got Lonnie Walker, the fourth, coming off the bench. I mean, this is, you know, talk about getting hot at the right time. And they have been getting hot recently and just taking advantage of the poor play for the Lakers. Again, this all goes back to Los Angeles just playing so bad, so bad. And, you know, I think New Orleans is a lock right now for the play-in. And I think San Antonio is going to find a way to get themselves into that 10 spot. That's what I think is going to happen in the Western conference. And this is the time of the year where it gets really, really tight heading into postseason play about a week and a half left of the regular season. And we've seen it this year that anything and everything can happen in the NBA. Of course, we have our big headlines that we got to talk about, but we've got some sub headlines as well that just have to get a mention and a discussion in this show. It is time once again for Quick Hits. And we start with maybe the most shocking news of the week, and that's Tiger Woods playing a practice round at Augusta a week before the Masters, this report came out that Tuesday, Tuesday he played a full 18 with his son Charlie, and he didn't, you know, do the thing a couple of months ago where he took a cart and played with Charlie. He walked, and for those that watch uh, the PGA in golf, Augusta's not an easy place to walk. It's very hilly. And this is a guy 14 months removed from leg and ankle surgery from just a horrific car accident. But this would just be, it would be amazing for the PGA and golf in general to see Tiger Woods come back uh, from such uh, a devastating blow to a Hall of Fame career. I know he's at the the tail end of his career, but to see things, uh, to see Tiger back in the PGA playing at the Masters, and especially with everything that's gone on with the PGA, with the comments from Phil Mickelson, with uh, the threat of the Saudi Golf League. I mean, this would turn things around. And he wouldn't be a favorite 
you know, in the in the tournament, but it would just be a feel-good moment to see him play one 18-hole round at Augusta during a tournament. I, I wouldn't even care nonetheless. It's a feel-good moment to see someone come back from such a devastating injury to see him play. And he's still listed as an expected participant. So we won't know until next week if one of the greatest golfers of all time decides to play in the biggest tournament in the PGA at Augusta. Back to basketball. We got to talk about the women's tournament and they have been just as exciting as the men's side of things. I mean, what an instant classic between UConn and NC State in the Elite Eight. The Huskies going to their 14th straight Final Four with that 91-87 victory. 14 straight Final Four appearances is absolutely unreal, especially when you look at how the game was played. There were multiple times where the ending was rewritten. I mean, what? Uh, Jakia Brown-Turner, less than a second to go, corner three in the first overtime to send it to a second overtime. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. Game of the year, I think. And then just to see Paige Beckers for UConn come up clutch uh, on the offensive side of things during overtime. 27 points uh, for maybe the best player in the nation. Um, Maybe. I say maybe because there are a lot of good candidates out there. But the women's Final Four is set as well. We got South Carolina and Louisville, followed by Stanford and UConn. And just out of those four teams right now, you know, you got three number ones and then UConn, which is the number two. I think right now the Gamecocks would be my favorite just because of what they can do on both ends of the floor and what Don Staley has done with her squad. I mean, their defense has been incredible in the tournament so far, only allowing 41 points per game. And then you've got, you know, the reason I say maybe about Paige Beckers is because you got Aaliyah Boston, who just won an award. I mean, she's just a force on both ends of the floor. Uh, 16, almost 17 points a game, 16 rebounds per game in four tournament games. And I think the test for South Carolina will be against Louisville. If if they can get past Louisville, then I think they can beat Stanford. They can beat UConn. But, you know, just as exciting as the men's side of things, the women's are just as exciting. To the NFL we go, and this is going to be kind of a two-parter because we heard the news about a rule change and then just last night, a little bit of a coaching change. So to start, the NFL is making a change to overtime in the postseason. Ultimately, the Chiefs-Bills rule, essentially, where each team will get a possession uh, if a playoff game goes to overtime. That means if someone goes and scores a touchdown, the other team does get a chance to get the ball and get it back. Now, I don't got a problem at all with this. I think, you know, because it's only going to be in the playoffs, I don't see a problem with uh, that kind of change. You know, this will, you know... It'll stop the whining from, you know, like Bills Mafia and Chiefs Kingdom saying, oh, we would have won the Super Bowl if we got the ball in overtime against Tom Brady, against Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, right. There's still no excuse for the Chiefs and the Bills for for letting that game go. But I, I, I don't have a problem with it at all. I don't, I don't see any problem. You know, if this was uh, going into the regular season, then it might be like, okay, you're you're pushing it a little bit. But the fact that it's only into a postseason, I think it's a good rule. I think it's a good rule. And it could help teams like the Bucks possibly uh, repeat and uh, get their second Super Bowl in three years. But they're going to have to do it with a new head coach as Bruce Arians retires as the Bucks head coach and will move into the front office. That means defensive coordinator Todd Bowles is going to become the new head coach. And there is no doubt in my mind that Tom Brady had his hand in this kind of decision he ultimately went up to ownership and said you want me back i want a new coach i don't want bruce arians just because of you know we've heard so much rift you know when tom brady initially uh you know he didn't explicitly say it or he didn't say anything right away but you know there were kind of some hidden messages you know there was no doubt in my mind that tom brady was a factor in this decision in bruce arians going from the sidelines to the front office quickly back to basketball though and there was another return from injury paul george pg-13 returning at a great time for the clippers ahead of the playoffs it was his first game since a ucl tear in his elbow uh on december 22nd he did have a minutes restriction but 34 points on 10 of 20 shooting including six of nine from three 
put on that six assists, four steals, and helping his team come back from 25 points down to beat the Utah Jazz. Now, I would say uh, that LA is locked. As I said in our first segment, they're locked into an eighth spot right now. They've lost five straight, but they did snap it with the win against Utah. I just don't think PG-13 is going to make a huge difference. You know, I think they can get out of the postseason or the, the play-in, I should say. I think they can beat whoever, you know, they have a chance to beat uh, whoever that seventh spot is. And even if they don't, I think they can easily beat the Lakers, the Pelicans, uh, or the Spurs. But I think after that, they just can't get past the first round. I think they don't stack up with... Uh, with Phoenix, they don't stack up with Memphis. And I think just everyone in that Clippers organization, Steve Ballmer, the owner, Ty Lue, the coach, I think everyone knew that this was kind of a throwaway season once uh, Paul George got hurt in December. You already haven't played uh, Kawhi Leonard all season long. Obviously, he had the ACL injury. But to have PG-13, you know, at least you have a chance to play spoiler. I don't think it's going to happen, but at, but at least you have a chance with Paul George on the floor to, you know, maybe rattle some things up uh, come postseason time. And then finally, we go into baseball as they have just launched a sort of global, fun, interactive sort of series. You know, it's called Home Run Derby X. And what's going to happen is this is uh, three, I think it's three different competitions uh, will take place in London, London, England, Seoul, South Korea, Mexico City. And um, the rules are kind of confusing when you're trying to understand like the scoring system and stuff like that. But essentially, it's going to be the four oldest franchises in baseball uh, with uh, former players uh, teaming up with rookies and softball stars. Um, and it's just going to be kind of an interactive competition. So you got Adrian Gonzalez representing the Dodgers. You got Johnny Gomes representing the Red Sox. Nick Swisher for the New York Yankees. And Giovanni Soto for the Chicago Cubs. And I think this is sort of a great way for baseball to really grow the sport uh, for young and international fans. I mean, I remember a few years ago they went to London uh, for a baseball game. Uh, they've, you know, they have a strong showing uh, out in Japan. Uh, and in China, um, but this is great uh, for a young, you know, international kind of crew. This is, it's kind of a way to uh, get the younger audience in there when you have sort of this competition like that. And not only that, you got the home run derby that's been kind of entertaining for the past couple of years. Um, I, you know, this is sort of Rob Manfred and all of them, you know, trying to figure out how can we grow the game? And you already have some big superstars. Hopefully you didn't lose them because of the lockout. But I think this is a nice little interactive thing. Um, and, the, and the best part is you got former players. You know, you got the old and the new. You know, past, present, future, I think is a good way to put it. Um, and I like how interactive it's going to be. So I'm kind of one of those, you know, wait and see. You know, it sounds interesting, but we'll just see how it plays out once uh, it gets underway. Uh, when their first competition, I guess, gets underway uh, in the first couple of months. And that is a wrap-up, once again, of Quick Hits. So now it is time, once again, to go local and talk about our teams. It's time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And I think everyone's got to start with the Boston Celtics. This was a team that got themselves into first place after being 18 and 21 back in December. They got to the top of the East and held it for a day. <laughs> but they lost a huge asset uh, along the way. They had a great performance uh, against Minnesota on Sunday. But in that game, Robert Williams tearing his meniscus. That's the bad news. The good news is that he will miss four to six weeks and there is hope. And the team is hopeful that he can be back for the second round of the playoffs. If the Celtics can make it that far. And that is a huge, huge blow. I mean, this was a team when you go back to the beginning of the year dealt with so much injuries and so many shuffling around with multiple guys getting COVID uh, and just a bunch of injuries. Um, then when they had their full squad and they started to turn things around, especially defensively, it started and ended 
with the Time Lord. I mean, he was holding opponents to under 40% shooting as the closest defender. That's the best in the NBA. The best in the NBA. I mean, this is just a blow for a guy. And what's funny when you talk about, you know, preseason expectations, you're thinking, okay, what can this team do when uh, Robert Williams is healthy? And he was, for the most part of the year, healthy. He was playing in uh, almost all of the games. And now here he comes with an injury at the worst time, especially when you have the East as tight as it is, as I mentioned. You know, when you have Philly, Milwaukee, uh, and Miami nipping at your heels. And, you know, it's just, to me, I'm unsure of how far Boston can go without Robert Williams in the lineup. I think they can still beat any team. You know, I think, you know, an outlier could be the uh, the game in Toronto because they didn't have anybody. But I think, you know, the fact that he will come back for the second round or hopefully he can come back for the second round is huge. That means in the first round, all you got to do, at least in my eyes, is avoid Philly, avoid Milwaukee, and avoid Brooklyn early on. As long as you don't get either of those teams in the first round, there is you you get a sense of comfort that this team has the defensive depth uh, that they can um, beat any team. You know, I don't th- I don't know. You know, I love Daniel Tice, or I don't love Daniel Tice, but um, I think he's a good asset off the bench. I don't know how effective he, Al Horford, and Grant Williams are going to be on Joel Embiid, on Giannis, on Kevin Durant. I think those would be some players that are really hard to stop. But I think, as I said, you know, the effort uh, from a team on the defensive end of things and then a much improved offense, I don't think that should change too drastically. Uh, but it just it kind of like makes your defense take a step back because you don't have that presence down low like Robert Williams, uh, who's gotten just better and better as the season has gone along. But, you know. This week was the first uh, bit of action that the Celtics had to play without uh, the Time Lord, and they uh, dropped back-to-back games. Uh, They went into Toronto, and then last night they lost against Miami. Ironically enough, uh, back-to-back losses is the first time they've lost consecutive games since uh, January 19th and 21st. And if you go back, that was the game, uh, the last game that Marcus Smart had missed Uh, before the team had won nine straight and just went on this masterful run. I mean, they were 23 and 24 at the time, and that was the last time they lost uh, two consecutive games. But, you know, as I said, Toronto was kind of an outlier game because Tatum Brown, Horford, Rob Williams uh, were all out, you know, um, and everyone wants to make a big deal about, you know, are the Celtics fully vaccinated if they got to play in Toronto? I'm just like, Stop making it a bigger deal than it is. Stop making it a bigger deal than it is. No one, it's, I'm just, I'm done with, you know, these vaccination rules and, you know, all that crap like that. But the fact that their, uh, their team went to overtime with Toronto, Toronto was almost, I would say they were pretty much at full strength. The Celtics didn't have probably, you know, four of their five top players uh, playing in that game and they still took it to overtime. So I think that's a good confidence boost if you're a Celtics fan thinking that the sky is going to fall now that Robert Williams isn't going to play. But I wanted to focus a little bit more on Miami, uh, the Miami game last night. I watched that game from start to finish, and that was just a killer. It was a killer because, uh, again, the defense was was playing incredible. Um, you had Marcus Smart making incredible passes. Daniel Tice was playing well off the bench. I think it was 12 points in the game. But the problem was just they just struggled offensively and uh, they just got kind of sucked into the fit, the uh, the officiating. You know, you know, I would say it was a poor officiated game on both sides of the things. I think the Celtics and the Heat uh, both had their their grievances. And I think justifiably so with uh, some of the calls, you know, being a lot of ticky tacky. Um, But, you know, Miami played just as good a defense as the Celtics. and uh, you, you saw it in the numbers offensively. They just hadn't performed uh, like they had. I mean, they only shot 41% from the field. You know, this is a team that in weeks were averaging about like 50%, something like that. And they only shot uh, 29.7% from three. So uh, it, it just wasn't going in. And then, you know, you top that in with 18 turnovers. So it was just a good defensive play uh, by a Miami and then just struggling offensively. And when you look at it, you, there were a lot of gimmies too. You had Grant Williams had some good looks under the basket. Forford had some good looks. 
Um, but Jalen Brown had a good game of 28 points. Tatum was a little bit off. Um, it, it was just, you know, the offense struggled and they got sucked into the officiating. And you kind of saw that, you know, even coach Ime Odoka said, we spent too much time complaining in the first half. And it kind of carried on that second half. They had a really bad fourth quarter. And then eventually, you know, when the game was out of hand, Marcus Smart just, he talked too much and the uh, referee just sent him packing with that ejection, which, which is kind of ridiculous <laughs> to eject someone, you know, for only one technical, a one technical ejection for talking. That's ridiculous. So not a big fan of the officiating crew, but you can't put it all on uh, the officiating crew. And now they've gone back to the number four spot. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just about managing it, managing time without Rob Williams. That's going to be it. Because I think right now they're locked into a top four spot. Just looking at the conference really quick. They've got uh, two and a half games up on Chicago and Toronto ahead of five and six. And then in seven, they've got uh, four and a half uh, up on Cleveland, who's in that seventh spot right now. So I think they're pretty much locked in to a top four spot right now um, and home court, at least in the first round. But I think for me, the outlook of the playoff is going to be dictated in that final three games of the regular season, just how well they perform at Chicago, at Milwaukee, at Memphis. How are, how are those three games going to go? And obviously, you know, the outlier is you don't have Rob Williams in the lineup, but you know, how does this team rally around it? You still got Jason Tatum. You still got Jalen Brown. Marcus Smart played incredibly well last night, I might add. Um, I think this team has the depth, and um, I think they can get out of the first round. So I think we will see Robert Williams uh, return to the court in the playoffs, and I think it will be in the second round. But in terms of championship outlook, I don't know yet. I'm not sure yet until I see it, you know, play out in the postseason. So we'll just see, you know, by this time, there'll only be a few games left in that regular season. How well will those Celtics do uh, without Rob Williams? Only time will tell. Time will tell. But speaking of uh, push to the postseason, the Bruins are doing the exact same thing. And, you know, they're still climbing a little bit uh, with about a month to go, less than a month. Uh, to go in the season and just, you know, looking at the standings really quick, they're kind of right back to where they've been for a really long time. Uh, 87 points on the year, 41, 20, and five in that first wild card spot, three up on the Washington Capitals. And, you know, they, they do get a nice game against the Devils tonight, uh, but what a tough game uh, this past Tuesday against the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, they lost six to four being down six to one at some point in the uh, second period. But in the first period, they were down three to one. And I go back to that, you know, just another slow start. And they just, they just didn't play a really good game to start out seven penalties for 22 minutes, 12 giveaways of the puck. I mean, I say it all the time, another slow start, some really bad turnovers. And it just looked like they were overpowered physically. And um, they had their chances. They had their chances. As I said, they were down six, one, they got it close. Um, they got it to six, four with, I want to say maybe two minutes left to go, uh, in regulation. So they had their chances. Um, they had their chances against Toronto, but it was just too little too late. And we've seen, you know, that's, that's just what I go to every single time the Bruins uh, drop a game like that is they just have slow starts and they just don't come out with the right kind of energy in uh, games like this. So, you know, they're, they're, they're physically getting better. You know, the trade for uh, Hampus Lindholm really helps out. They're getting better, but they're when you, it's basically, it's a 60 minute game. You got three 20 minute periods and they played well for the final 30 minutes instead of, you know, maybe the 50 minute mark. Um, and that's sort of been the, the MO of the Bruins is just slow starts kill them. And that's what we're seeing here against a team that might be catching fire like Toronto. And what stinks if you're a Bruins fan is that you had the chance to leapfrog the Tampa Bay Lightning all the way up to second place in the Atlantic. But now, because of that loss and just some bad stretches of games, you're back uh, into that first wild card spot, you know, clinging to, you know, hoping that. Uh, you get out of the wild card and you get, you know, maybe some home ice, you know, as I said, though, you get a nice, easy home matchup against the New Jersey Devils. And then you get a home game against the Columbus Blue Jackets, who, you know, they're the last team eliminated from the Eastern Conference playoffs. But come on, 
They're at 69 points. The Capitals are at 84 points. No one's going to catch them. No one's going to catch them. Uh, so you got those two games before that uh, four-game road trip. Um, but on the positive side of things for the Bruins, I like what I'm seeing uh, from the third and fourth lines. You know, I like seeing the energy from Felino, Nosek, uh, Trent Frederick, uh, uh, Smith, and uh, Curtis Lazar. I like seeing that. I like seeing that from this team. And, you know, I don't think offense and uh, energy was the was a huge problem for the Bruins uh, when they have sort of had their struggles. It's just been sort of defense and physicality. Um, so when you're seeing, you know, this kind of energy from, you know, your back half lines, all you got to do is just improve uh, physically and then you'll be uh, right back to where you want to be. And the, the good news is that there's still, as I said, it's less than a month. It's a two point gap between Toronto and Boston and a three point gap between Tampa and Boston. So there's still time to make that up. But when you're looking at what happened this past week, it was not pretty, not pretty. And we'll see if the Bruins can turn things around uh, starting tonight when they take on the New Jersey Devils. But lastly, and let's get local, we got to talk about the Patriots because the head coach and the owner have made their first public comments uh, at the coaches meeting of the off season so far. And what we've heard from Bill Belichick is that there will not be any coordinators this season. Matt, uh, Joe Judge, Matt Patricia are going to be involved uh, heavily on offense. And according to Bill, he doesn't like titles. I say this every single week we talk about the Bruins. I don't have a clue what Bill's strategy is here going on for having this team grow. I don't know what it is. I don't know if there are young guys that just haven't played or haven't played as best uh, as we think they can. I don't know what it is, but I know for sure that teams of success had anchors in the coaching staff, okay? On the offensive side of the things, you had Josh McDaniels. On the defensive side of things for a couple of years, you had uh, Romeo Cornell. Then you had uh, Matt Patricia at one point. You had these anchors. And why, why it's not happening this year, I don't know. Because this is a team that still has to grow. You still have a quarterback going into his second year. You have, you're coming off a year in which you, you know, spent basically your whole salary on a couple of guys. So I don't know what the strategy is for Bill Belichick. I feel like we, we need to hear more from him for uh, what his strategy is. And maybe we'll get those answers at training camp when, you know, we see which players are playing along the first team or playing on the second team. I think that's really when we're going to figure out, okay, this is what Belichick is doing uh, with his strategy on both sides of the ball. But uh, that's what his coach said. His owner, by the way, said that he is bothered by recent playoff failures of this Patriots team. And uh, I'm not trying to be captain obvious here, but if you have been a fan of this team for uh, the 20 year uh, the last 20 years, of course you'd feel that way. Of course you would feel bothered that you were basically the best team in the last 20 plus years. And now here you are uh, getting out of the wild card twice and missing the playoffs all in all. Because you got to remember the last playoff win this team had was their Super Bowl win against the Rams back at Super Bowl 53. And I get it. I get it. New England fans aren't used to a rebuilding situation. We've seen it plenty of times recently with the Celtics and with the Red Sox. We've seen rebuilding, but Patriots fans are not used to a rebuilding. You got to go all the way back to the 90s, the pre-Tom Brady era, um, when you had to go through sort of a rebuilding situation. So I get where Robert Kraft is coming from. I get where the owner is because you want to go back to that success. You want to you want it to last for another 20 years and then another 20 years after that and another 20 years after that. Of course, you would feel bothered by these playoff failures, but we'll just see what Bill Belichick can do to turn his owner's feelings around. Because if you are anyone in the city of Boston, if you are a Boston fan, as I say over and over, success is the number one priority.
as we always do to wrap up the show, it's our LOL moment of the week. And before we get into this week's moment, we got to bring up again the ultimate LOL moment bracket. Okay, we are down to the final four, final four moments from all 64, the previous 64 episodes, I should say, of the moment. We are down uh, to Mike Evans, Sergio Romo, Tom Brady, and Manny Ramirez. Okay, we are down to those four stories and those four moments right there. And if you missed it on our Instagram, at LetMeSpeak underscore official, we will be releasing the final four on Friday, uh, tomorrow when this podcast is released. And then we will have the championship matchup be released on Sunday and we'll announce the winner by this time next week on the 68th edition, the 68th episode of Let Me Speak. So tune in for that and keep voting on all our social media platforms. But to talk about this week, it's kind of a blast from the past in a very unique way, I'll add. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Bill Lee, 75-year-old Bill Spaceman lead, is a former Red Sox legend, and he returned to the field. Yes, he took the mound in an actual baseball game. And how does it happen? Well, if you look at the video online at Twitter, YouTube, wherever you want to find it, 75-year-old Bill Spaceman lead emerges from the crowd. He's holding a cup of beer like he would in uh, any other baseball game. And he's taking the field for the Savannah Bananas. He goes into the mound. He goes onto the mound for the Bananas. And he strikes out a guy. He strikes out a guy. And, of course, he had the infamous Ephus pitch, which you don't know is basically a lob in. Uh, it's basically kind of like a rainbow shot if you don't know what an Ephus pitch is. But a 75-year-old man, 75-year-old baseball legend, came back to the mound and struck out a guy. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. You got to go all the way back to the 1970s when this guy pitched. Okay. He even started a World Series game for the Boston Red Sox against the Cincinnati Reds. And it was just unreal to see. Unreal to see that a guy this age is back playing baseball and pitching on the mound. Now, the backstory kind of on this if you don't know about uh, the Savannah Bananas, they are from the Coastal Plain League, which is essentially a minor league team, kind of similar to uh, the Cape Cod Baseball League. If you don't know what that is, it's a bunch of uh, college players or uh, minor league players. They sign up and they play a whole season. And pretty much what the Bananas are, they're similar to the Harlem Globetrotters. They're the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball because this team is as entertaining as it gets. If you look online at everything they've done uh, since they became a team, they, you see your players get involved with fans. They have choreographed dances. Uh, they just inter introduced a brand new interactive rule where if a fan catches a foul ball, that player is out. And it's pretty much a circus atmosphere with the Savannah Bananas. And ultimately, that's how you get, you know, a new audience, a younger audience into baseball, is that you have fun, interactive moments like this. You get guys like... Uh, a 75-year-old uh, former MLB player return to the mound and strike out a young athletic uh, baseball player. That's how you get fans is you just have this kind of atmosphere. So it's, it's kind of hard to describe what the Savannah Bananas actually do and how they get so many eyes on them. But basically, they, they put on a circus and they're the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, of baseball because they just they don't make uh going to a baseball game there a time they make it an experience they are very interactive uh with the fans with the players um you know there was a video i i was ultimately gonna have uh, uh a viral moment where a guy hit a guy uh doing a split you know he got a hit uh while he was standing at home plate and he did the, the splits and he still got a hit so that was gonna be the very that was going to be the moment I was going to pencil in there, but to see uh, Bill Spaceman Lee, I know my dad has uh, had multiple stories about him um, and the things that he did while he was pitching uh, for the Boston Red Sox from uh, the late sixties into uh, the late seventies. So he's definitely a character. I mean, you're not just called Spaceman. 
for a reason. So Bill Spaceman League for returning to the baseball mound at 75 years old for maybe the most entertaining entertaining thing going on in baseball, the Savannah Bananas, has earned yourself into this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for watching. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure, as always, you follow our social media pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.